Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Good morning. Good afternoon. Hello, everybody. I'm Rosemary Coates, your host for this podcast from Silicon Valley and Buffalo, New York. I'm your host for this edition of Women in Manufacturing podcast. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring or expand their manufacturing back to the U.S. I also run a global supply chain firm that's called Blue Silk Consulting, where I help clients with their global supply chain projects and where I also do quite a bit of expert witness work these days. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women all across America, and we ask them to share their experiences with us and give us some insights for women leaders in America that we can all learn from. And so today, I'm really excited for having my guest, Christine Howard. Christine is the founder and CEO of EBH Consulting and StartupFundHub.com a firm that's focused on education and management consulting and helping companies find and apply for non-dilutive funding, which she's going to describe here in a minute, such as grants. She's helped lots of firms raise funds for their work and their causes, including the Reshoring Institute. So welcome, Christine. Glad to have you today. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm glad I can be here. It's the day after daylight savings time adjustment, and I think we're all feeling the effects of it, and I'm just, I'm slow going. So yeah, E.B. Howard Consulting, full-service, non-dilutive development firm. We help our clients find funding, apply for funding, and measure the outcomes on funding. How did you get started in this industry? It's not something that, you know, a kid in high school is saying, oh, I think I'm going to go into fundraising, right? Or evaluation for that matter. So my path is not a straight path. And this is something, you know, you can be reassured that your path is not going to be a straight path. I went to graduate school for the most unlikely of unlikely things. I was an archaeologist with a minor in statistics, and I loved archaeology. It's great. However, it's not as romantic as the movies would paint it, you know, with Indiana Jones or Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. You're cold, you're wet, you're dirty, you get paid barely minimum wage, you don't have health insurance. And I was working on my dissertation at the time for my PhD, which I never finished. And I was working on it, I was getting frustrated, and I wanted to have a car that didn't break down, and I wanted to be able to afford, you know, utilities and health insurance and those sort <laughs> of things. things huh? <laughs> Small things, you know, you know, just, you know, not asking too much. So I was in graduate school, and I ran across an ad that was posted. It was a multidisciplinary project going to involve like the Department of Chemistry, the Department of Epidemiology and the Anthropology Department. They were looking for a program coordinator, director. It was to oversee this data collection project where we were collecting data. It was from the modern archaeological record. So everything post-1930 when there was requirements for landfills that said you can't just put whatever you want into a landfill. You can't put plutonium and baby diapers and whatever the heck you want. There's regulations about what actually can go in nowadays. And we were looking at the modern archaeological record and the related health effects from landfills if there's a water source going by 
and what would happen. And I know people may or may not know about Love Canal, which is not too far from Buffalo, New York. It's about 30 minute drive. The story of when we were growing up for sure. And, you know, what we were looking at is in the Buffalo area in the southern part of the city, like a, a first tier suburb. And it was, you know, people, you know, Love Canal still fresh in their mind. Everybody's well aware of what transpired. It was a landfill. There was high rates of cancer, high rates of autoimmune issues. And, you know, we were looking at the study, you know, in a suburb where they were starting to see not necessarily cancer, but autoimmune, hepatitis related issues, sterility And we were looking at the data set and, you know, it was because there was a landfill that was leaching into the water source. And this was years and years and years ago. Nothing became of it. Like our data was inconclusive at the end of the day. And there were so many other factors involved. There's a major airport nearby. There's a crushed stone place where they grind up stones. So there's all sorts of things going on that could contribute to these health effects. It wasn't necessarily the landfill. So... All of that being said, I was working with the PI on the project. He's like, hey, I got a friend who's starting a firm. He's like, you like statistics and data collection. You seem to eat it up. You should apply. He's looking for somebody to be an evaluator. And I'm like, what the heck's an evaluator? It was completely unheard of. Turns out there's a whole social science research field based upon measuring outcomes, did not know this at the time, but here I am in graduate school, did no idea. And then went to work for an evaluation firm. And I was there for almost 10 years. What does what evaluation firm do? Evaluation, they measure outcomes. So it's, you know, there's different fields and sectors. So this one focused on education. So you can measure you know, if you receive federal funding or state funding, there's reporting requirements. Did you do what you said you were going to do with the grant dollars you received? You know, if you had an after school program and you served 150 kids, demonstrate the evidence so that you served a 100. Grant or funding monitor. Kind of, but it's more social science research methodologically based. So it'd be like demonstrating, does your after school program contribute to improve grades? Is there evidence of that, that kind of measurement and accountability? So I was there for almost 10 years and, you know, something, you know, and I want to be very clear about this. I by no means want to say anything disparaging about my employer, my previous employer, but the situation was I was offered equity partnership. I had had a really great performance review. I got a bonus I had a raise and this was in the time from like September all the way till I was just about laid off in that next July. And it was because I got sick and, or at least I think it was because I got sick. They have their other records as to, you know, they can say whatever they want, but it forced me to make a change in my life and think about what did I want to do for a living And I had been doing evaluation for such a long time, and I didn't see another career path. And so I started putting the feelers out, doing some evaluation. And, you know, eventually some clients are like, hey, you know, you're helping us with this project. Can you help us find other funding? And eventually, so I'm like, okay, so we're doing eval, and now we're locating other funding. Oh, you know what? You found it for us. Can you help us write it? And really ended up evolving to this 
thing where we're finding funding, applying for funding, and then measure the outcomes on the funding. And we started moving towards exclusively the STEM industry, specifically the startup and innovation sector is really where we're focused now. Took years and years of refinement to get where we are. Initially, we would work with anyone (laughs) to work with us. It was higher ed, K through 12, you know, and a grassroots nonprofit. So we were a little bit all over the place, but now we're really focused on innovation and it must have a STEM base and it must have you know, there must be some greater impacts for it. So, yeah, sure, we could work with a nonprofit, well, but they have to be doing something for economic development, much like what reshoring does. So if you're working with startups, this idea of dilutive and non-dilutive funding yep. comes into play there. Can you sort of define those things for the audience? Yeah. So dilutive funding means they're going to take equity or slice of the pie. So if you own 100% of your pie, the slice of, if you think about it in terms of a pie, you have this big, great, fantastic pie, your ownership of a company, but they want a slice of it. So it may be 5%, 20%, whatever it is, venture capital firms tend to want a slice of the pie. Angel investors, we're on the other side of that non-dilutive, meaning there's no equity going to be taken from you. And there's a whole world within there. So it could be grants, could be pitch competitions, could be accelerators. There is the banking industry, but the differentiator between where we sit versus the banking industry, you have to pay back. Right. So a grant or some kind of funding that you're going after is not a payback. It's more of a kind of... It's a grant. Yeah, a grant. Okay. Okay. And those of us who have our own business are, are often looking for funding, and certainly we are at the Reshoring Institute all the time looking for, for funding and donations and so forth. So can you start by giving us an overview of where a small company might start? Where do they begin if they want to do some fundraising or are looking for grants? So there's a couple of different avenues. Depends on your industry. So it really you know, funding's more plentiful depending on your industry. Obviously, the tech and STEM-based industries, there's funding to be had all over the place. In, but in if tech you and were tech and work, uh, like STEM-based industries, oh, STEM-based, okay. Yeah. So you know, engineering, mathematics, technology type, you know, science-based industries, there's funding to be had. But something to be aware of, you know, if you're a Main Street business, you know, there's funding, but you're going to have to do a little bit of digging. And I recommend, you know, start out with the basics. Google. Just start looking for grants for business. Start out with something really simple. If you are in the STEM industry, science, technology, engineering, and math, and you're doing something innovative, start looking at the federal government. And you can go to grants.gov. What's in grants.gov is what's out right now. So that's one avenue to go down. And of course, there's all sorts of databases out there. You know, we maintain a database startup fund hub, and that has pitch competitions and accelerators and grants. And, you know, we're pulling in all of the government funding that's available as well. And that's just for for profit entities. And, you know, we're not discerning in there about, you know, industry type. So if we find something that's for small business, we're going to put it in there. We don't always catch everything, but we try to. We try to find everything we can. Okay, so a small business by themselves could go and Google or look at grants.gov 
but you help with all kinds of fundraising in a little different way, right? I mean, can you sort of describe broadly what kind of services you provide? Yeah. So the first one is we'll build a funding menu for a client and we typically can map for sure a year, but sometimes we're lucky enough to map 18 months to two years out. And really it's a roadmap of the funding opportunities that are coming out right now that you're eligible for and that also aligns with your industry. So yeah, you can go do a Google search. Yeah, you can build your own spreadsheet, but we're going to curate and vet that funding opportunity to make sure, one, that you're eligible. That's incredibly important. You don't want to find something on there that's, you know, meant for after school programming or vascular surgery if you're in, you know, autonomous driving. So we can vet those funding opportunities, reach out to funders, have conversations with them. We don't tell them who our clients are, but we check for that extra nuggets of information that you're not going to find on a website. We'll talk to program officers and say, hey, you know, we got a client that's doing this. What can you tell us? Should they choose to put in an application? And we get all sorts of extra information back that we're just not going to get. They'll say, hey, when you submit this document, make sure it's labeled this way or make sure that, you know, when you're putting in your proposal, it's covers X, Y, Z or something to that. And so it's extra nuggets of info that you're not going to find anywhere else. Yeah, because, you know, having had this experience trying to find funding for the Reshoring Institute, and you know, you can Google it and you can spend, you know, the next six months. Spend days. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trying to wade through all the government sites, but it's next to impossible unless you get help. It's just really for an ordinary person just trying to search on this stuff. And, you know, most of us as entrepreneurs also need to run our businesses. So right. We don't Let us take it off your plate for you. That's really it. Let us take it off your plate. It's going to take us about 30 days because, yes, we got to chase people down and have conversations with them. And, you know, with COVID going out, sometimes they're more responsive than, you know, if they, we reach out to them by email versus picking up the phone because everyone's phones don't quite, you know, port over to their private residence or anything like that. But, yeah, it'll take us about 30 days and you'll know the landscape. You'll know what's going on. You'll have a timeline. You'll know who you you should be talking to. So for example, if you're going to go for a specific pitch competition, you know, if you got questions, you got a phone number or an email of that person that you should be talking to. You know, if it's Rosemary, you need to know that you should be talking to Rosemary. Yeah, right. So tell us about a few success stories that you've had in, in writing or getting funds for either startups or small businesses. Uh, we have so many. And when they come through the door, we celebrate our team so excited when we find out a client gets funded. And it is a competitive landscape. So, you know, just to be really transparent about it, you know, anyone that says to you that they have a 100% success rate or 75% success rate, I would be suspect. You're not always going to get funded. So what the is the time. average success rate? You know, it depends on the agency. So there's so many variables at play. So, you know, one, I come right out of the box and say success rates are bad <laughs> measure outright. You have to think about the agency. You have to think about the topic, the subject matter, expertise, funding rounds. You know, I use NIH as an example. They have small business innovation research funding opportunity. It, and NIH has three cycles a year. 
those are different reviewers in each cycle, and you may not have the same set of re- reviewers for each and every single proposal. So, MIH or a company may have money available, and then you write a grant and apply for it, and then they do this whole review process, right? Yeah, so you would submit your proposal, you wait, it could be upwards of six months before you hear back from them, you get your scores back. You know, the scores you get in, you know, round one and you were to resubmit in round two, you might not even have the same reviewers. So when we're talking about success rate, you know, I think about it like there's so many moving parts to the review process. One, we don't know that if the reviewers are subject matter experts at all. Mm -hmm. We don't know if they're commercialization experts in any way, shape or form. So there's a lot we don't know about that. Like, it's just blind. You're not going to know that information. But going back to success with our, you know, our clients, you know, we've had clients, I'm trying to think of a few really good examples. We've had clients, you know, with real-time water contamination detection, you know, to be able to demonstrate proof of concept. We've had others in the biomedical industry also be able to demonstrate proof of concept. We've had clients go through pitch competitions and make it to like the semifinals, the second place, and get a small chunk of cash in pitch competitions. And, you know, we've been really excited to see them, you know, just any money coming in the door is good. They've been able to use our funding menus to be able to strategize and decide who are they going to apply to? When are they going to apply to them? Because where you are now as a company may not be where you are in six months. You may not be in the same spot a year from now. So as you're evolving and growing, there's different things that you want to consider. Any particular one you can tell us about? or I would have to think about it for a second, a specific name of a company. I mean, we post our successes right on our website, so we do keep okay. a track record right on our website. So when a client gets funded, especially in SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research, that is the one thing that we are posting about. Oh, I can talk about one. Riviera Partners, they were in a partnership with the University of Virginia It was the creation of, and I'm going to probably get the nuts and bolts of it wrong because it was, it was so detailed. It was about the utilization of an AI to help with job performance, skill relationship to job postings to like, if you don't have a bachelor's degree or a bachelor's degree in a specific subject, it was creating this database to put the un- those that don't traditionally qualify for a position in front of those oh, that are screening for job candidates. Yeah. So it's a different way of getting the right skilled, qualified candidate in front of them, especially those right. that don't traditionally get in front of the, right. the so HR. If somebody didn't have a degree or whatever, they might never get the opportunity. Right. But maybe they've got 15 years work experience and right. maybe they were a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home father or something like that. They still are highly qualified. They maybe don't have formal education. But it was really focused on women and minorities trying to make sure that they're not being screened out because of some other variables. Yeah. And it was putting them in front of those reviewers and we were thrilled. It was the first grant of its kind and they got a million dollars to demonstrate wow. proof of concept out of NSF. So we were like just demonstrating proof of concept was and getting a million dollars. We were, you know, happy, just absolutely happy. thrilled over the moon about that. Okay. That's awesome. 
So when you're writing these grants, I know that there is specific language and specific approaches to doing it too. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how you would ultimately, one is finding the grant, right? That's right. available. And then secondly, writing the grant itself. So you help your customers with that as well, right? So talk a little bit about the specificity of the language and what the things you have to do to write a grant that's going to be successful ultimately. So there's a couple of different things we tell our clients. Once we find a funding opportunity, or maybe they have a funding opportunity and they want to work with us, there's you know the, the solicitation that you ran into or that we found, and it says, you know, hey, we'll fund you for X number of dollars, and it has a bunch of instructions on it. We tell our clients, this is very like old school process, but it works. Print out the solicitation and read it line by line by line by line. And if you can't meet the criteria of that solicitation without a doubt, without question, don't go near it. And it's simply because the landscape is that competitive and we wouldn't want anyone chasing something they're not 100% ready for. Gotcha. So if you can go line by line by line and say, yeah, I'm absolutely, we can do this. We can meet their criteria. We can talk about it. We have evidence. We're ready to go. We can demonstrate proof of concept. NSF, SBIR seed funding to demonstrate proof of concept. They have a pitch competition. And if you can't, I don't even want to call it a pitch competition. It's a pitch. They ask you four questions before you can even submit a proposal. And if you can't answer those four questions, you shouldn't be applying. So there's that. Read the directions. Make sure you can answer all the questions. The other thing that we tell our clients is if it's less than 30 calendar days away, no good will come from it. You will not be funded simply because there's so much paperwork involved. There's so much documentation, let alone the proposal preparation component of itself, especially in the federal funding space. If you're trying to race to the deadline and you're scrambling to get accounts approved, active and valid and upload and all of the supporting documentation that goes with just the proposal, 30 days is not enough. And we tell our clients 60 to 90 days is the sweet spot. Then with all of that in mind, if you're still moving forward and everything makes sense, seven calendar days is when you want to be done in advance of that deadline. And the reason is don't tempt fate. <laughs> if the internet can go down, your computer can die. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a lot about planning, yeah. scheduling, it's strategy, right? and reading, and it just simply following the directions. And that's one thing that I was so impressed working with your team. You and your team is the organization structure, the project management, the on time. I mean, every time I talked to you on the phone, we'd say, you know, 10 o'clock and man, you were there at 10 o'clock. We're not messing around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really very, it felt very effective and structured and it, it felt good. You know, I knew you were taking care of things for us. So that's great. Right. So yeah, timelines. And it's just, you know, if you can meet those deadlines, at, you know, be done seven calendar days in advance and have your documentation in order, you know, really, it comes down to just really follow the directions. And if you can get past all of that, then you're in for deep consideration. You, you, also, you also use some tools, though, right? I mean, you have some software that you're using also that helps you, right? 
Well, yes, with writing and project management and, you know, also with some research as well. So, you know, Grammarly is our best friend. We love Grammarly because, man, you know, even when we write, we can write the word the twice and not know it. And it can happen to anybody. But having a second set of eyes, even with our team, there's six of us now, and we have someone doing copy editing and doing critical review, like going through and say, did you answer this clearly enough? You know, we still need second sets of eyes, sometimes third sets of eyes, even from the client, we expect them to read their own proposal, make sure we can't do it in a vacuum. But yeah, Grammarly... Google Docs, you know, so for shared document storage, so you can see everything in real time, what's going on. That's a big thing. Google Drive is invaluable to us. We have project management software that we use to make sure that we're hitting all of the components. We're a big advocate for TeamWave. It's probably our favorite CRM platform because it's HR, CRM, project management, time tracking all in one, and it is low cost. I'm a big advocate for free or low cost. I know some startups like Asana and some like some other platforms, TeamWave, that just meets our needs. That's what we use. And then really at that point, it's just being really skilled at digging around on the internet. So if we have to do a lit review, you know, Google Scholar is great. It's, you can get right to peer review journal articles quickly. Because a lot of times we have to bring forward peer review journal articles to demonstrate that there's evidence or that there's a probability or that, you know, what does the industry look like or, you know, what does commercialization look like? You know, those sort of things. If we got to pull in evidence, that's a great place to do it. And that's great. And you know that you have a full tool set and a lot of experience and a lot of success I want to shift a little bit, though, and talk about ethics in the industry. So fundraising and, you know, living here in Silicon Valley with a lot of angel investors and different people, there's always questions about ethics and fundraising. Can you talk a little bit about that? So our big thing, and it comes down to something really simple. Don't break the law. Just don't. If they're not enforcing a regulation right now, doesn't mean they won't be enforcing a regulation down the road. And we use grant writing as a really good example of this. In the federal space, there's specific allowables and unallowables on how you can utilize your grant dollars. And there's a perception, you know, in the startup community that you can do contingency fees or that the grant writer can be paid out of the grant. And it's just, it's an unallowable expense. You won't even get funded if you state you're going to misuse your dollars. So, you know, if you're applying for a $250,000 grant and you say, well, we're going to write the grant writer in, but the grant writer has no, can't make the funder fund you. That's one. And two, you're trying to use those dollars to pay for services rendered prior to the grant award. They're pretty specific uh, about. I see. You so can't even do that. You can't even pull they, out of that. These have to be paid separately, right? And any reputable, yeah, because right. you're providing services prior to the awarding of the grant, right? And uh, any reputable grant writer will tell you that you know that's an unallowable expense. The other thing is contingency fee. Like it's we get paid contingent upon, you know, whether or not you're funded. We can't make a funder fund you. We can't influence them in any way. We have no idea who the reviewers are. 
the only thing that we can do, one, is, you know, make sure your paperwork's filled out correctly, make sure everything's uploaded in the platform, make sure, you know, it's submitted on time. But also we can help with crafting and writing of the language. But that's still, you know, as we may put together a high quality proposal, that may not be enough to get the reviewer's attention. There may be somebody else coming to the table with a you know, shinier car or a newer model of something or doing something very similar to you and, and approaching it from a different way than you would have ever considered it. So there's a lot of things we can't control from, but all we're doing, I mean, if you want to think about it in the most rudimentary ways, we're filling out your paperwork, we're uploading it to the platform and we're writing the proposal. And at the end of the day, we tell our clients, look it, you still have to read the proposal. You have to give us feedback you have to be the one to submit the proposal. We'll upload it, but you got to hit the button. It's your grant. But we can't control the funders and we can't make them fund you. So, you know, our work, time and labor and effort, knowledge and expertise, you know, that's not fair to someone who's put time and effort into a project to, you know, have their potential paycheck be contingent upon that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And there's a whole bunch of ethics surrounding that. Like if you're a member of the Grant Professional Association, you know, they have a whole list of ethics and guidelines, you know, surrounding what you should be doing and what you should not be doing as a grant professional. So one last question, given the current environment, is this a good time to raise money or a bad time to raise money? Always a good time. Yeah, it's always a good time, regardless of what's going on either at the federal level, change in administration, legislative items going on. Now's the time. Always now is the time. Because if you don't get started now, now will become yesterday and it may be too late. Is there more funding available during, you know, yeah, I would imagine going forward, you know, trying to recover from the pandemic, there's likely more money available. Yeah, post-COVID, you're going to see some, you know, funding being allocated to economic recovery efforts. You're going to see things that were delayed in 2020 start to show up in 2021 and even in 2022 because people can do things in 2020, couldn't have in-person events depending on where you were in the United States. So you're going to see things, you know, crop up that maybe were held back a year and maybe... Maybe funding opportunities are going to be more plentiful because you're now dealing with the 2020 year plus the 2021's year's worth of funding that was already available and potentially even 2022's funding. So we're going to have a little bit of a bubble in what would be out there. And I would say now is the time. Don't wait. Very good. Now is the time. Don't wait. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Christine. Really, really appreciate it. It's really interesting Can you give us your contact information so if anyone wants to reach out to you? If you can find EB Howard Consulting, if you Google it, you can find us. But I would encourage you to go to our website. That's E as in Edward, B as in boy, Howard.com. Our contact info is right on our website. You can schedule a consult call with me if you need. If you have questions, I'm happy to answer any questions anyone may have about funding, about proposal preparation, even evaluation as well. One last point, I should point this out real quick. You may hear in the startup community or the funding community, you may hear individuals accidentally say evaluate as opposed to valuation. 
And there's a difference between the two. And I've caught it recently a few times. So valuation is the your estimated dollar worth of a company. You want to say valuation with a V, not evaluation. <laughs> evaluation is social science methodological measurement. And so, yes, both are measurements, but one has a very, very different outcome to it than uh, one. But yeah, E.B. Howard Consulting, and you can find us at ebhoward.com. All our contact info is on our website, and you can reach out, call us, email us, schedule a consult call. Happy to answer anyone's questions about funding, pitch competitions, accelerators, grants, SBIR, you name it. Terrific. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Really great information, especially, you know, for so many companies that are thinking of new ideas and wanting to move forward. So you can listen to more of our podcasts on women in manufacturing. We have websites called www.womenandmfg, so womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website at www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.